Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott and I'm your host. I'm a high performance coach who uses science, spirituality, and play to help you remember who you are so you can welcome more ease, joy, and abundance into your life. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited for this week's episode. I hope you love it very, very much. But before we get to that, have you gotten your human design chart from me yet? You can get it for free from me at kelseyabbott.com. So come on over. If you haven't gotten your chart yet, come on over and get it. And if you've gotten your chart or that just doesn't light you up, but you want to know how you're doing in alignment, come on over to kelseyabbott.com and take the alignment quiz. The link to both of these is in the show notes. I love you so much. Enjoy this episode. Catherine, I'm so excited you're here. I'm excited to do this with you. Me too. I'm so honored you asked me to be on your podcast. Thank you mm-hmm. for having me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're welcome. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right into it. You, We met in feng shui school, and I knew that you worked with highly sensitive people. Yes. And I want to, that's what we're going to talk about a ton today. But the thing that struck me so much was when you showed me your human design chart and your G center is wide open except for one gate. So of course you are, you, and you have an open throat. So you do two open centers, which means that it's going to be really intense in those two open centers for you. So you're an advocate for others with your open throat, advocate for all the other highly sensitive people. And with your open G center, you feel and take on everyone else's identity. So yes, you are literally (laughs) born to do what you're doing. It's so validating to hear. And I don't know, I know a little bit about human design and I know I'm a one three generator, but um, it's validating to hear you speak about those open centers because that has absolutely been my experience. And it was very overwhelming growing up being somebody who you don't really know that you're taking on everybody's emotions, identities, thoughts, beliefs, Mm -hmm. um, their energies. And that is really the experience of of being a highly sensitive person or an empath is just the intense feeling of everything and everybody around you. And um, it's validating and also not surprising to hear it's, it's somehow reflected in my human design chart too. So it's cool to hear that. I'm interested. Do you pull, do you ever look at the charts for your clients? Every once in a while I do, because I know enough to be dangerous about human design and I don't try to give them readings or anything, but I may give them the language of generator versus projector. And I do find what I have found, and I don't really have a ton of data to back this up, but anecdotally, a lot of people in my audience are projectors and a lot of clients I work with tend to be projectors. And it's very validating for them to hear about the concept of a projector, because usually they're measuring themselves up against feeling like they should be the energy of a generator or the capacity of a generator and human design language just gives them so much permission. So I do like to show them that. That makes sense to me. I'm wondering if you get, because technically you're not an empath in human design because you don't feel other people's emotions. You feel their identities. And technically I'm not an empath in human design because I don't feel other people's emotions. I feel other people's feelings like their thoughts oh. that then lead to their feelings. So I'm curious as as you open your academy maybe we can play with our charts together and see like who are the emotional empaths, who are the identity empaths, who are the feeling empaths and 
just see where people are picking up other people's stuff. So you can better have a better handle on like what's yours and what's not yours. That's amazing to hear because I love the idea of empathy being almost like different pillars too. the Mm -hmm. identity thing feels so real for me. And when I learned, you know, a couple of years ago or whenever I came across human design that my my G center was open, that made a ton of sense to me because I'm also somebody who feels like I know, I I know from my basic understanding, you know, I do adapt to the identities and the environments around me, but that I just change so much. (laughs) And so understanding that it's an empathetic ability for identities, that's like blowing my mind right now. Yeah. And we'll get into the highly sensitive stuff (laughs) soon, but I also want to know you're currently spending a month in Indiana when you live in Virginia. Are you a totally different person? You know, somebody actually DM me on Instagram the other day and they were like, because I recently detailed a process of moving out more to nature. I spent most of my life in Washington, DC. So in a, you know, not a huge city, but a pretty big, you know, East coast city. It's where I was born. I was raised in the suburbs of Washington, DC, and then moved back to the city. And I had lived there for 16 years. And recently my partner and I moved to rural Virginia in a small town of a hundred people. And somebody DM me and they were like, why didn't you just move to Indiana? You seem to be very full of life in Indiana, very creative, very inspired. And I was like, I do feel that way. And we had our, our reasons for being in Virginia mm-hmm. and we love where we've ended up. But I, I have noticed, and this is our fourth year spending an entire month in Indiana. I do feel like a different person here and in in ways that are beautiful and inspiring and ways that are challenging too. Um, I, interestingly enough, I feel a lot of contentedness here. And I've always attributed that to being, it's like, it's it's a smaller town. We live, we're in a very rural part of Indiana. So you have limited choices, which can actually, you know, be a positive aspect for mental health because you're not feeling overwhelmed or too much stimulation. Mm-hmm. But maybe, yeah, maybe there's something about the the identity part of human design. I'd love to hear more if you have any thoughts on that. Oh my God. Well, I mean, you're the only one who know. well, that's not true. All the people around you, your boyfriend in particular is the one who's going to be like, whoa, who's this Catherine? Like, do I want to <laughs> hang out with this one? Or I mean, if he ends up being like, we need to go to Indiana for a while, then, yeah. you know, he's know. craving that version of you. Mm-hmm. But every version of you is completely authentic. And it's for you to determine where you feel best. And you even notice things in your body. Like I know, uh, clients of mine with open G centers will be super bloated when they're in some areas or they'll take on people's physical issues. Whoa. So pay attention to that. And the other thing is you have a defined ego. It doesn't mean that you don't have an inner critic, but you're a little bit protected against an inner critic. They will have healed their inner critic and then all of a sudden be like, my inner critic is coming up so much all of a sudden when I'm around this person not yours. Mm-hmm. That's you feeling that other person's inner critic. That resonates because I have done, you know, highly sensitive people, like many humans do deal with insecurities and the inner critic and self-doubt. And I've done a lot of work over the years in healing that in me. And I'm human and it still pops up, but I I do absolutely notice from time to time if I'm around a particular situation or person, the self-doubt will really seep in. And so this gives me language for understanding. And I can just say, like, I return that energy to you. Yeah. I always say, please return to sender with compassion. And to know too, oh my God, that's what that person is feeling. It might totally change your perspective of things. Yeah. Like, oh, I thought they were such a jerk, but turns out they're really hurting. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love knowing that. That's so useful to hear and consider going forward in those situations. Mm. Okay. So I think it's about time we define what a highly sensitive person is. (laughs) Yes. So Highly sensitive person, or HSP for short, is a term coined by psychologist Dr. Elaine Aaron, who's done a lot of research um, on this topic and was the person who kind of brought this to the forefront. And her last name is A-R-O-N. So Elaine Aaron, if anybody wants to Google her. Um, and, according, and she's got several books on being an HSP. So according to her theory, HSPs are a subset of the population who are high in a personality trait known as sensory processing sensitivity. And when you have a high level of sensory processing sensitivity, you may display increased emotional sensitivity, uh, stronger reactivity to both external and internal stimuli, a complex inner life. Um, You may be very empathetic (laughs) and you also have a strong depth of processing. So you can feel information deeply, you feel emotions deeply, you process information more deeply, right? And so these traits can come together to create the highly sensitive person. Um, And I really didn't realize until my late 30s, and I'm 43 now, that I was highly sensitive. And I came across it in some podcast or book or something. And I immediately went to Dr. Aaron's site, which you can go to to take a quiz like, oh, might I be this? And I scored like off the charts (laughs) high. And I was like, wow, what? And it just gave me a name. You know, I think... um, Labels can sometimes be useful and sometimes not useful. And it's all about identifying what feels true to you and your situation. And does it feel supportive? Understanding that I was a highly sensitive person was very useful to me because it gave me language for the way I struggle to interact with the world. Um, And ever since then, when I started my coaching business, I knew that highly sensitive people were the people I I wanted to help, Um, especially high achieving, highly sensitive people. And I know that you work with high performance, high achieving Mm -hmm. people as well. Um, It can be hard to be a high achieving, highly sensitive person because you may have an emotional roller coaster. You may feel, you know, emotions just so off the charts, deeply stimuli of noise or sensations may be difficult for you. And so being highly sensitive it is simply living in a world that can kind of overwhelm you. But when you work to ground yourself, regulate your nervous system, understand your identity, um, use things like beautiful spiritual tools like human design or astrology to better understand yourself and how to work with your innate sensitivity, you begin to be like, oh, what I thought was my weakness, my sensitivity is actually a, a beautiful gift and a beautiful strength. And I know so many people who feel deeply sensitive feel like they are a liability or that their sensitivity is a, is a burden to them and to other people. And what I hope most of all through my guidance and mentorship programs and teachings is to enable the highly sensitive person to understand they're, they're a gift to this world. Their empathy and their sensitivities are, are a talent. And when you ground it and use it uh, pro- properly, appropriately with boundaries for you and for other people, it's just, it's, it's the most beautiful thing. That was all so well said. Thank you. I just want to give you like a double high five. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. Um, what was it like as a kid, highly sensitive kid for you? Mm, a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I was um, not a nightmare. I, I had a relatively stable childhood and everything like that. And at the same time, I was an incredibly deeply feeling kid. 
And for any of the astrology buffs out there, I'm also a Scorpio moon, which makes you an intense person, an emotionally intense person. And while I grew up in a stable household, it was a very emotionally repressed household. And we didn't really know, I was never taught how to regulate my emotions or that it was okay to feel sad. It was kind of the household where like, oh, you're crying? Ooh, stop crying. Don't cry. You don't have to cry. And I was like, oh. you know, I would feel everything so deeply. But at the same time, I was an incredibly creative little kid, um, incredibly perceptive. Um, I've been writing a really long time. Writing is one of my my great loves. And so I had all the gifts of feeling attuned to nature as a kid and not even knowing that that, that was not necessarily common for everybody else. You know, we would talk to spirits in the forest or play with animals or play in the dirt and talk to flowers you know, write stories. I had an incredible imagination as a little kid, as I think most kids do. Um, but I did find that the world often overwhelmed me. And what I did to cope with that was I became somebody who was kind of a perfectionist and somebody who was really academically successful. I understood innately that my sensitivity sometimes felt like too much for people around me. And I worked on approval by, you know, getting being the straight A student, being the good girl, and, you know, that gets you through parts of childhood and adolescence, but ultimately it ends up kind of hamstringing you more than anything else because you're in this rigid container and perception of yourself. And so a lot of my work over the past couple of decades has been deconstructing that story for me. Mm-hmm. And what, after school, what, where did you find yourself gravitating career-wise before you became a coach? Yeah, well, a little bit of my like career background is I have degrees in English literature and a master's in journalism. And so I was like, I love writing. I'm a good writer. I guess I'll be a journalist. And so I went and got my master's in journalism. And this is right around the time that blogs and the internet were kind of coming to the forefront in the mid-aughts. But I just didn't believe that I could make a living off of my writing. Um, and so I went into corporate uh, communications, corporate content. So I worked for, I went back to Washington, D.C., and I worked for a magazine. I worked for some corporate communications. And ultimately, my career path became um, like doing internal corporate communications for companies. And while parts of that were satisfying, um, ultimately, when I got to my late 30s, you know, when everybody starts to have their kind of like existential crisis of their of their late 30s or 40s, the midlife crisis, of sorts. Um, I was like, the only part of this I like anymore is managing people. And, you know, life coaching was coming more into the forefront. This is about 2018 or so. And so I decided I'd get a life coaching certification. I went to an incredible year long program, a new venture uh, organization called New Ventures West. And after that sort of stars aligned that I decided it was time to end my job. There was a really natural like exit that happened there. And so I found myself in 2019, at age 39, at the end of 2019, at age 39, you know, three months before the pandemic, leaving my corporate job and starting a fledgling online life coaching business. And then, of course, in 2020, March 2020, the pandemic happened and everything unfolded from there. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, have had many crises in the few years since then. Should I be doing this? You know, and entrepreneurship, as you know, is difficult and it's it's really a growth opportunity in so many ways. But ultimately, it's been the most satisfying career path of my life, um, being able to mentor women and teach highly sensitive people how to empower themselves with their gifts um, has been, you know, the greatest honor of my life. And so it's about four years and counting now. And that's where I am in my business. I'm curious, do women, this is just a random, like, I'm just wondering, do women 
are women more likely to be highly sensitive people or are women more likely to identify as being highly sensitive than men? That's a great question. I think it's the latter. And mm-hmm. the it's difficult to quantify highly sensitive people. Aaron uh, estimates that it's about 15 to 20% of the population. And I'm not sure of the gender breakdown there. But I think it's relatively equal. But I, I do think what you said is probably correct, that it's easier for women to identify as highly mm-hmm. sensitive um, and to adopt that language. I think know? it's funny, 15 to 20%, because I would say that like, of the people I spend time with, it's like 90%. Totally. <laughs> I'm really, you know, you don't really realize how surrounded you are by empathetic and sensitive people. Yeah. And to be honest, I think just humans are sensitive and we mm-hmm. don't really give ourselves the permission to really live that sensitivity out. Um, so maybe it's more than 15 to 20%. And, and who knows, as you know, humanity continues to evolve, I imagine right. more of us are stepping into our sensitivities too. Right. So, Actually, yeah. that's interesting because from a human design perspective, I know I've told you we're moving into the new paradigm in 2027. Yes. And part of like the evolution that we're all going through right now is around emotions. Mm. You and I both have emotional authority. This is probably too much for all the listeners, but I'm telling you for the, for the one, three human design nerd who's listening, um, we have defined emotions. We have our own emotions. The other half of the population feels and amplifies our emotions So we're actually in this evolution where we're communicating, we're learning to communicate through our emotions. Mm. So we don't need, we don't need to talk. We don't need to read. We need, we just feel each other's emotions. Wow. Wow. I can, I can imagine that coming more and more to the forefront. And at the same time, it's such a skill processing, feeling, communicating our emotions is something that like almost nobody still knows how to do authentically and purposefully and and with love and compassion for themselves and others, like emotional intelligence, whether it's your own emotions or just understanding other people's emotions. I think it's something that highly sensitive people are naturally good at, but because our emotions can be so overwhelming and we often feel them quite deeply in our bodies and our physical system. We just don't really know what to do with them. So we end up repressing them. (laughs) And so it's great to hear that we're hopefully stepping more into an age of, of being more with our emotions and understanding and feeling them. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit. We'll come back to more highly sensitiveness, I think. And this is all part of it, but I, so I'm on your email list. I read the Sunday Soother. I'm a big fan. Oh, and you. the last two issues that you've sent out have been on animism. And then I don't know what your topic would be. Like, it's kind of like nature and stu- it was almost like learning about principles of enoughness from nature yeah. as inspired by yeah. this book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yes. So Okay, I've got a couple questions. First of all, these two topics are things that are part of my identity. Mm, And I'm curious, would you have written, like, I'm wondering if you're amplifying my G-Center as you're writing these two emails. Are we hanging out together enough for you to be (laughs) doing that? (laughs) How does that work? What does that mean in human design? Well, I have a defined G-Center. I know who I am. I'm the same person in every environment, every situation. Um, it's like part of my soul. And sometimes I have these experiences where it's like, like I looked at this and was like, oh, thank God she wrote this. It just feels so good. It felt like I wasn't supposed to write these things, but it feels good that they're shared with the world. Like just mm-hmm. so no matter how it all came to you. Thank you. Oh, 
Thank you. You know, I, there's something, I don't know if this is reflected in my chart or how this works with an open G center, but I do often get the feedback. Like you said exactly what was on my mind this week or something I've been thinking about for months you put mm-hmm. into words and captured the essence of it. Um, and I've always, I've just kind of chopped that up to intuition and being a little bit in touch with the collective, but maybe there's something about the G center. It is absolutely your open G center and your open throat. You're taking huh. people's identities and speaking them, advocating for that. them. I, yeah. I also wonder if it has anything to do with our feng shui teacher, Amanda Gibby Peters, who is also very much like an earth intuitive mm-hmm. and very much an animistic, you know, practicer and believer too. So we are spending an hour every week mm-hmm. with her and together. So there's probably something going on there too, because right. I know it's she likes those things. Well, and I haven't seen her whole chart. She definitely has an open throat because you oh, ask her a yeah. question and she just goes. Goes. And I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. So much gold comes out of that mouth hole. That's um so cool. So for our listeners, can you define animism, please? Yeah. I mean, animism, a simple way of putting animism is just acknowledging that the world is full of persons, most of whom uh, whom are non-human is one of my favorite definitions. So it's the idea that we're all alive with the consciousness. And when I say we, I mean rivers, oceans, trees, animals, even inanimate objects to some extent, Mm -hmm. Um, that everything is imbued with this sense of aliveness and interconnectedness, that there is a personhood, a soul to everything. And I think in today's society, um, you know, this is something that's innate to human knowledge, like every indigenous people in, in the world knew and practiced this at some point. And it's forgotten wisdom, really. Um, but we have a culture, unfortunately, I think of what I would almost call human supremacy, um, that humans know the best, are the best, do the best, you know, that that we should be in charge of everything. But we forget that, you know, think about the wisdom of something like a whale, <laughs> which has been around for way longer than a human, right? And so the whale understands the intelligence of the ocean and the mysteries and the change of the earth and, you know, the tree across from your house, like it has an identity, it has feelings. And when you start to interact with the world as such, these things that you previously thought were kind of, you know, quote unquote, not not dead, like we all get that trees and animals are alive, but maybe that they didn't have a personhood they start showing you their personhood, you know, trees will drop an acorn in front of you, or you'll get an energy of a sense from them that they're happy to see you once you start treating them as such, or animals will show up at particular times in your life. And you're like, oh my God, why did that owl show up like right at this moment? That was crazy. I've never seen an owl before. And, And very much you and I are learning the study of feng shui. You learn that houses have souls and spirits too, and your house and the energy of your house is communicating to you at all times. So it's basically that everything is alive and everything it has an essence or you could call it a soul. And you said something really interesting in your essay that most people know this until they're like 10. And I shared that with my husband and we were like, oh, we missed that, that you were supposed <laughs> to stop understanding all of this. Well, it's, it's, yes, there are psychological stages of animism as provided by some, some research that's been conducted and what you're saying is that most of us and what I wrote about in the essay is that we get it. Like when we're babies, everything's alive. We may not have the words or, you know, consciousness to totally understand that. But when you see kids like three and up, you know, they, they name animals. They talk to nature, you know, as Mm -hmm. I talked about, as I did with, when I was a kid, I I talked to like my stuffed animals is an animism practice. You know, what kid doesn't do that? 
And, um, you know, you might even like when I was a kid, I had sensitivities towards things like our dishwasher because I was worried that we were using the dishwasher too much and it would get tired, <laughs> stuff like that. And sensitive kids can really be in tune with things like that. So, um, but unfortunately, yeah, like whether it's the school system, just kind of how life goes, modern society, a lot of us forget and lose that wisdom or, or we're mocked for it and we put it away. You know, I definitely lost my animism. I was like the least spiritual person you have ever seen for most of my life um, until probably my mid to late thirties when I kind of started to have, you know, the personal spiritual awakening mm-hmm. that a lot of us who are interested in this work end up having. And it's like, boom, animism came back in full force. And over the last few years, it's really just become just such an important part of my practice and belief system. It's really interesting to me because I didn't lose it. I have been talking to trees and animals on, on the regular, like all day, every day. Um, and I, I studied marine biology. I studied whales and dolphins. I studied animal behavior. So it's just normal for me, like totally normal. And I remember hearing a podcast once where someone was like, they said that the most impactful thing their guest had said was that she greets the animals outside. And yes. I was like, and this was like three years ago. And that's when I realized, oh, people don't do that. Like, I'm a weirdo. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I knew I was weird for other reasons, but I had no idea. that. My I would say it's weird not weird. to greet the animals. So you, <laughs> you're on track. And I do that now too. You know, we talked about how I'm in Indiana and the cottage we stay at is this beautiful Airbnb. It's a sweet little cottage right on the banks of the Tippecanoe River in Northwest Indiana. We greet the river. Uh, there's like three great blue herons. We say good morning to them every morning. We greet the trees and it's just not, it doesn't, it's not something, you know, there's squirrels or like we call ones we name the animals. One of these squirrels is this like crazed little pine squirrel that we call Rocky. <laughs> and you can feel the personality of animals and the personality of bodies of water, the personality of mountains. Um, and you, yeah, you treat, you treat them as humans. You give them respectful names. You don't have to name every, every single tree like Sally or, you know, Bob or whatever, but you can say maple tree with a capital mm-hmm. M, you know, and you can say good morning squirrel. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a very fancy or rigid practice. We just kind of do it. We toss it off and we're like, you know, good morning, good morning. Um, and it can feel a little silly at first when you start, because I think we've been taught that animism is kind of infantile in a way it's childish. Right. Um, but it's really not when you start doing it and allowing yourself to do it, you realize it's just innately part of who we are and part of our connection to all the living things around us. Yeah. It's just polite, isn't it? It's just polite. (laughs) Right. I love that. It is just polite. We're sharing our spaces with trees and animals and, you know, whoever else. So, I mean, I know one of the things I've really loved and learning in feng shui is the concept of like saying good morning to our house and waking it up, opening the windows, opening the blinds and in the evening saying good night to the house, mm-hmm. you know, pulling down the blinds, turning down the lights. And, you know, that's another way of practicing it too. Yeah, absolutely. And giving your house a name. Yes. Yes. Oh, our house we, is joy. We name our houses. Oh, yeah. I love that. <laughs> um. Okay. So how is that connected to HSP-ness. Well, I find that that, that came HSP-ness... out differently than I intended. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got the core of the question for okay, sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I think HSPs, whether or not you identify as an HSP or an empath, if you're just like an innately sensitive person, you're tuned into nature and you're tuned into the spirit of, of life all around you. 
HSPs are incredibly creative too. I think animism is a very creative practice in many ways. Um, but when you're a highly sensitive person, I mean, the best way I can kind of describe it is just that you're incredibly open. Like your nervous system is delicate. You can perceive subtleties that other people can't. So you may be able to sense the inherent aliveness of everything around you. Um, and I wouldn't say that all HSPs are spiritual or have to be spiritual, but I think that a lot of us do come to a spiritual practice, you know, whether that's a religious practice, a spiritual practice, a nature-based practice, or a ritual-based practice, you know, just infusing your life with intention. It doesn't have to be spiritual or religious necessarily. But I think HSPs were, were meaning makers. We love to make meaning of the world around us. We love to give heft to ideas and routines and the passing of the seasons. And so for me, especially the kind of HSPs that I work with, um, there is an inherent connection to nature and a sense of sacredness in the world around us. And that's where I find the the crossover between kind of like animism and HSP. What's awesome about being an HSP? Oh my gosh. What's not awesome. I mean, there's, it, it can be hard to be an HSP in an overstimulating world for sure. But I think your creativity, your connection with nature, the ability to tune in to, um, a sense of something larger around you and really feel that empathy is a huge element of HSPs. Now everything has a shadow and a light. And so there are difficulties of being too empathetic, right? You can have poor boundaries or feel, take on too much of the pain of other people and want to save them or stuff like that. Um, but I love being an empathetic and compassionate person. I mean, to me, that's one of the, the greatest gifts of being an HSP is having that empathy and compassion and being able to understand the perspective of, of other people's experiences. Um, I mean, I think the creativity of HSPs, it's one of my favorite things. I love to write. I love to talk, obviously. <laughs> and I love to share ideas and meaning make and tuning into that that rich inner imagination, that rich inner world that many HSPs have is such a gift, um, you know, and lots of other stuff. So you, you can just appreciate finer things in life and to not like, they don't have to be fancy, but you can look at a sunset and be like in total awe because you really feel the depths of it. Um, or, you know, you can smell a beautiful flower and it feels incredible too. So, you know, and I think probably for me, my favorite thing about being an HSP is my connection to nature. I feel that I have a deeper connection to nature that, than most people. I think most people have inherent connections to nature, but I don't know that a, a lot of them let themselves feel the depth of that connection to nature and that trust um, in nature and the universe. But like we were talking about talking to animals, seeing animal signs all over the place, um, really feeling supported and held by nature is is a gift of being an HSP in my opinion. So how was it living in DC? I mean, DC as cities go is fairly well connected with nature, but the difference yes. between where you live now and DC. Oh, huge. I mean, the thing was, I didn't really know I was an HSP until my late to mid thirties. So I wasn't, I was just living a regular city dweller life. Like I would go camping and hiking sometimes, but it wasn't something I, I did not consider myself like an outdoorsy person, for example. Um, and so I didn't even know that I craved and needed that connection because I had so much conditioning and so much lack of awareness around how much nature really fed my soul. 
Um, but it was really the pandemic. I mean, I have to gift. We all had to, there was nowhere to go but outside. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I was doing in 2020 was exploring local parks, uh, local nature reserves, and realizing how much nature was supporting me through that, you know, difficult and challenging but transformative time. And I was like, oh, I really love <laughs> nature and I need it. And once you start to tap into that and, be, and become aware of it, you start to crave it more. And so I realized by the end of 2020, I did need to move to somewhere with more nature. That was something that was going to be a really important part of my growth and evolution. And now I live about um, 75 minutes west of Washington, D.C. in a small town in rural Virginia, pretty close to West Virginia. And I go walking in the woods every day. Um, I have a friend. We go trail trail running sometimes on the Appalachian Trail, which is 10 minutes from us. Um, you know, my boyfriend and I will spend our evenings with a book outside on our porch, which overlooks our creek. And yeah, I mean, I think we both feel much more at, at peace there. Um, that's the thing about like, you know, some people really thrive off cities' energies. And I think there are HSPs that can totally thrive in cities. But you don't know how much it's draining your life force till you leave it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you've yeah. ever experienced that. Yeah, I lived I've lived in DC and I was in Shenandoah and a, like some Maryland hikes like yeah. every weekend. Yeah. Um I've I've done this city thing, but it's been so funny to me how much it's not for me. Yeah. That I'm like, I used to have it, I think I still have it. There's this um it's this little plastic box made to look like a shipping crate and all these um stickers on it that say like caution fragile heavy do not open all this stuff and you press a button and it shakes it's got a suction cup on the bottom so it's you like attach it to a desk and it shakes and it starts knocking and goes excuse me excuse me will you let me out of here and that's what i felt like whenever i was in a city Yes, yes. Yeah. And now I know it um, when I go back in. Like we, I I do try to go into DC a couple of times a month because I find there is an aliveness there, you know, to use some feng shui terminology, like where I live right now is very yin. So it's calm, it's soft, it's nature-based, it's quiet. And DC is cities are, are yang. There's this aliveness, a sharpness to it. And I do find it's nice to get that balance every once in a while, but tops a couple times a month is it is it you know is what I need from from city living and I'm I'm very content living more in, in my yin nature based place. Yes. Oh I love it. <laughs> so we're we're gonna have to wrap this up soon. So I want to make sure we're talking about leadership. Yes. For HSPs. Just talk about that. What's the how why is it important to you? Why is it important to your clients? What does it mean? Yes. Yes. Well, I am, um, I'm starting a leadership Academy for highly sensitive people in September. And so this is something that has really been at the forefront of my mind in the past year, as I have worked with my clients who are are ambitious and highly achieving people and want to make an impact in the world. And as I worked more with them and helped them come to terms with how maybe their nine to five or their corporate job wasn't working for them or how they felt oppressed by particular systems that are currently in place in leadership, it really got me thinking about like, why do we not have more highly sensitive people as leaders? And a lot of highly sensitive people do not consider themselves leaders. They do not think they are cut out for leadership and uh, because of their sensitivities and their innate, you know, softness in a lot of ways or their innate feminine qualities. And I just couldn't think more of the opposite. I mean, as I see, we now we're navigating this change. I don't know too much about the 2027 new age um, information from human design, but anybody with 
a beating heart can tell that we need change in this world and that there does need to be a new paradigm of consciousness that needs to come in and how we uh, interact with each other and how we interact with social justice and racial justice and how we interact with the planet. And for me, it's really important to give highly sensitive people leadership training so that they can become part of the, the new leaders that need to help shift our society and our consciousness going forward. Um, and I think highly sensitive people have so much leadership potential and it may not look like the current model of leadership potential. And that's a good thing, <laughs> right? We don't need the current model of leadership potential, which is you know, toxic masculinity, patriarchal, about profit at all costs. You know, you get the image of like a dude in a suit in a boardroom talking about quarterly, annual whatevers. And that's not the kind of leadership I think we need anymore. That kind of leadership has, has not helped this world at all. We need a more balanced feminine version of leadership that's sustainable, that's regenerative, that's nature-based, that's community collective care oriented. And I think highly sensitive people have the hearts and the minds to be able to do that. Um, but we doubt ourselves as leaders and we, we struggle to see ourselves as leaders. And we also sometimes don't have the tools to regulate our nervous system, process our emotions, um, get over imposter syndrome is a huge thing with highly sensitive people in the inner critic, as we talked about before, um, when we were chatting before the recording started. And so what I hope to do is, is help HSPs understand that a new model of leadership is needed overall. You don't have to resonate with today's leadership. I certainly don't. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's no. not what we're going for. I think HSPs have the potential to be the best leaders. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that we need, the ones that can feel everybody else's everything and then lead us. You know what everyone else's experience and and then we go forward together. Yeah. We rise together. And yeah, yes. and this is what we're shifting towards from the masculine to the feminine. And that doesn't mean male and female. We know yeah. that. I think our listeners know that. Um this is like that rigid pushy in energy level speak uh, it's level two energy that I win, you lose versus mm -hmm. the we all rise together. We're all one. And this is where we're going. This yes, is how it exactly. feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So how can people find out more about your Leadership Academy? Yes. So um, I'm like all over the internet, like most of us these days, <laughs> but probably the best place to go to learn specifically. So it's called the Highly Sensitive Person Leadership Academy, HLA for short. And it opens the waitlist on September 5th um, and mid-September it'll open to the public, but you can get on the waitlist now. So you can just go to katherinedavidandrews.com slash HLA. And I'm also, and that's um. Catherine with the C and I'm on Instagram at Catherine Andrews and I'm talking a lot about leadership there too. And of course, as you mentioned that you're a reader of my, um, my newsletter, the Sunday Soother, and I also have a podcast named the Sunday Soother too. Amazing. And we will put all the links in the show notes so you don't have to jot down and know how to spell Catherine's name. Thank you. Is there anything else? No, that's not what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you what, what do all the humans as you, as you feel and amplify all of our identities right now, what do all the humans need to hear in this moment? Well, something that is really coming through for me is, I mean, this sounds so basic, but I think so many people are struggling with the concept of enoughness right now. Enoughness internally, enoughness financially, enoughness comparison-wise to the person you're looking at on Instagram. And what is really coming up for me is practicing 
mundane joy is what I call it and mundane gratitude. And I don't mean boring, but I just mean that we, there is sufficiency around most of us. If you're listening to this podcast, we're lucky enough to have enough. And I know that the internet and social media can make it seem as though it's the opposite, but where can you cultivate sufficiency for what is? I I think also something that's coming through um, and we'll see how this plays out in the next, you know, few years or decades is cultivating more simplicity in our lives and returning to simple pleasures, whatever that looks like for anybody. And that might be taking a walk um, in the mornings or learning how to, you know, grow a container garden um, and really finding your people in a small way. My boyfriend and I were just talking the other night about how we just don't feel anymore. Like we used to think this, this, the, definition of a successful social person was somebody who had like 30 friends and we're like yeah we want like three friends (laughs) right now and not because we don't love people but just we're being sustained more simply and simplifying our lives whatever that looks like it's going to look different for everybody but creating a smaller life and it doesn't a smaller life does not mean a poorer life or a boringer life it it just that's something I'm really seeing people start to crave that we've been pushed to think, oh, we should have these big lives with these huge salaries and tons of friends. And we're traveling all the time. And there's nothing wrong with making money or traveling or any of those things. You know, those can be really beautiful things. But I think um, simpler, smaller, sustainable is is really coming forward and just giving yourselves permission to be, that's okay. It's There's nothing wrong with us if we don't crave a huge life or we don't want to, you know, work 60 hours a week so we can have a multiple six-figure income business. If you do want those things, that's awesome. And I, you know, highly support that, but it's okay to, to be in the smaller life. And I hope that that resonates. Yeah. When we bought this house five years ago, five and a half years ago, we had been traveling in a camper for 16 months and we had Mm -hmm. had all of our stuff in storage for those 16 months. So we had like two bowls, two glasses, two forks, two knives, two spoons. And so we brought all that stuff in and then it took two weeks for our stuff, the rest of our stuff to arrive. I didn't want any of it. I actually told my husband, I was like, I can't, I'm just going to go hang outside with our dog to make sure like he's safe from the movers and you can, cause I will tell them to take it all back. I want the (laughs) bed frame and I don't think we need anything more than that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's, it's really, it's going to be different for everybody because I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of beauty in cultivating things that you love and, you know, having beauty in your home. And I love beautiful clothes and and stuff like that too. But like, so it's not about denying yourself necessarily anything. Um, but it's just, can you tune into what really feels sufficient? What does sufficiency and enoughness mean for you? And how can you start to shift your life? Even if it's in very small ways, like I, um, was writing a newsletter recently and I was like talking about decluttering my kitchen and I was like, well, why do I have like eight like spatulas? <laughs> like and yeah, I don't really need eight spatulas. And so like a very small practice is like trusting that one spatula will be enough to carry me yeah. through my baking needs. And how does that happen in your routines? How does it happen in your friendships? How does it happen in, you know, the, the way you're interacting with the world? Like small, small is beautiful in a lot of ways and simplicity is beautiful. And I, and I will add on, I think simplicity is very important for HSPs because we do get so easily overwhelmed when we have a lot going on or a lot of things around us. Um, it can kind of overload our system. So simplicity is a self-care is something I would, I would highly recommend. 
Yeah, I love that so much. And I love the concept of mundane joy. I call it inconspicuous awesomeness. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you can use it. You can (laughs) share it every day. Look for the inconspicuous awesomeness. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Catherine. This has been such a delight. And I'm excited to see you in feng shui school tonight. I know. I'll see you shortly. And we're going to be talking about some really cool things, I think. And just thank you so much. I mean, I think so much the people who are teaching new spiritual systems and new perspectives like human design are so 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 needed for everybody to help ourselves better understand our potential and so your work is so important and i've learned already so much from you and so i'm so grateful that you teach what you do thank you so much Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, please share it with anyone else you know who needs to hear it. And if it lights you up to do so, please leave a five-star rating and a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now, let's talk about you. If you don't have your human design chart from me, go and get it at KelseyAbbott.com. If you are interested in one of the Find Your Awesome Podcast events coming up, Go to KelseyAbbott.com. You will find everything you need there. Thank you so much for listening. You're amazing. You are wonderful. I love you so much. Go forth and be awesome.